Welcome to Kolisha, the podcast that gives Orthodox women a voice. Welcome back to Kolisha. This week, I am really, really excited to have a super awesome guest on. And in the interest of full disclosure, I have been harassing her for several months now to come (laughs) on the show because I have been so inspired by her, by her story, by the Torah and the Hashkafa and the wisdom that she shares with the world. And I'm super, super excited to introduce Abigail Hasson, who is the host or hostess of The Modest Bohemian, which is on Instagram and YouTube. And she also hosts a new podcast called Torah with Toddlers, So she is a fairly new convert and a former retail manager and beauty vlogger turned quote unquote soul fluencer. She's gone through many metamorphoses on social media and her current and main premise is to just show her perspective and passion for Hashem and Jewish living. And she hopes with this content that she could shine a light onto her fellow Jews and help them come closer to the Darach Torah, and at the same time, also give a clear and unique perspective on what it means to be an Orthodox Jew and share this with the world. And I discovered Avigail on Instagram and <laughs> the title, The Modest Bohemian, just really defines who she is. And her backstory of converting to Judaism is something that I don't know all the details of, but she is very yeah. open and willing to share. And I'm so excited to welcome you, Abigail, to Kolisha. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. I've, I honestly feel very honored and excited to be, to be here and to explain, my, uh, to explain my journey a little bit and how that ties into uh, my tzniyas and just my relationship with, um, you know, with uh, Yaudit and religiosity in general. So, yeah. (laughs) I'm so excited. Um, I've been following along with you for a while and I know you talk about converting to Mm -hmm. Judaism and um, for those who are listening and have not yet checked out Abigail's page and can't see her right now, she is a beautiful Filipina American woman. And Abigail, I live in New York City area and I work in healthcare. So I think you can understand what that means, right? I have a lot of Filipino colleagues and friends and it's such an amazing culture. Maybe you can tell me what it is, but the Filipino people are some of the kindest, most nurturing, caregiving people. And many of them flock to healthcare. And this must be why, because there's such wonderful, kind, giving people. So tell me a little bit about your background growing up in that community, what your religion was like, and um, a little bit about your childhood. Okay, so you definitely got a lot of the points in terms of Filipinos and healthcare, and a lot of them are practicing nurses and doctors. And that's definitely the embodiment of my family. My mom is a nurse, an ER nurse, an RN to be exact. She is the head educator for nurses. She is literally the big boss in her department. Um, so I grew up, I actually was born in the Philippines um, in a, an island called Bohol. 
this was my father's, my biological father's um, island. My mom had to migrate to, to his, um, and that's where I was born, um, to like a middle class, I would say, a family in the Philippines. I say that and I emphasize that because most of the families, especially my mother's family and how she grew up, were very, very dirt poor. And I think the emphasis of um, nursing or education was was the bulk of our upbringing because it was a means to get out of our situation, to get out of, I wouldn't say destitute, there are people in destitute, unfortunately, but, you know, a means to elevate and better our, our lives. Um, and so, um, unfortunately, even though my mom had the education that she had, there, there were sacrifices that she had to make, which meant that she had to leave me with my father at a very young age um, in order for her to come to America and pursue a career in nursing so that she could establish herself here. And so, yeah, that was like the bulk of my of my childhood was not living with my mom. And then when she was able to actually move us to America, you mentioned that you grew up in New York or you're living in New York. I actually grew up in New York as well. Oh, well, I, so cool. I, I moved so much. Like, I'm, I don't know if I should go into detail of how often I moved, where I moved, but I moved so much back and forth in my childhood. But um, the, the, the first a place that I would say that I could call home was Astoria, Queens. Uh, my mom was a nurse there. She had a job as an RN. And from a very young age, it was always about education. It was always about a means to get out of um, a situation and to, to elevate your life. When my mom was able to finally retrieve my father and I from the Philippines and carry us over to Astoria, Queens, there was a lot of domestic turmoil because my father was unfortunately an alcoholic he was also an abuser um and this came with a lot of like heavy decision making let's just say for my mother and as her child as her daughter unfortunately I witnessed and also experienced a lot of the firsthand but also secondhand abuse as well so the reason why I bring this up is because at an early age, I was already exposed to very confusing things, very traumatic things that I think now, now in my position in my life, I'm able to look back and see all of these experiences and, and, and fortunate um, calamities in my life. And I'm able to see that Hashem's hand was mamash through, through it all. Um, so unfortunately, like I mentioned before, my father was an alcoholic abuser and we were stranded a little bit in Astoria, Queens, because my mom had to really kind of reorganize how she was going to not only deal with her new work now as a nurse, but also how is she going to help me with her divorce, trying to escape and, and, um, and things like that. I know you asked about my culture. <laughs> I think I kind of went off on a tangent, but I think it's in relation to that because you'll also see on top of the culture of Filipinos and how education is important and uh, all this, you'll see that many women specifically have made a great deal of a sacrifice to pull their children out of, uh, of poverty in the Philippines or to pull their children out of really sad circumstances that unfortunately happen within homes. 
Wow. That's so that's very intense. I was three, four years old. <laughs> wow. So, Do you yeah. remember that clearly? Or is it sort of before remember- your retained memories? Okay. So I think the brain, and I learned this in psychology later on in my life, the brain has a powerful way to protect your, yourself, if that makes sense, from certain memories that you have. So I have fragmented memories, but I also have whole memories. And the fragmented memories that I, that I shared, I didn't share everything with my mother that I experienced. I'm not going to go into detail about that. But the fragments that I did share, I was able to create like a puzzle piece with the fragments that she was able to share. And I was able to connect the dots with certain things. If that makes sense, if that makes any sense. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Absolutely. And you have to admire the strength of your mom. And like you said, the other women who are so strong and, you know, and I'm sure you'll go into this a little more later, but I have no doubt that that gave you also a certain amount of strength, you know, as you went through your life. So take me a little further into um, maybe your teenage years or a little later when you started going through these um, changes or thoughts of wanting to maybe adopt a little bit of a different lifestyle. Okay. So um, I mentioned before that I had moved with my mom when I was three, four years old, she was able to take us back from the Philippines and finally live with her in Astoria, Queens. But because the relationship was tumultuous and she was trying to escape the abusive marriage, um, she actually had to put me in hiding. Oh, wow. It's crazy. I, I, everyone always tells me I should write a book about my life. I wish I was making this up, but I, it's like, it's like out of a movie scene. So she had to put me in hiding into other people's homes. Sometimes it was homes that were her coworkers. Um, it was uh, homes of her friends. And of course, you have to keep in mind now that she just moved to Astoria, Queens. So to give trust to someone to take care of her own child is also a lot to ask for my mom. So what wound up happening is that she sent me back to the Philippines, this time with her sisters in her island so that she can work and concentrate in Astoria, Queens, and I can be in a safe haven back to the Philippines, at least this time with family and people that she knew and she could trust. So if you have this image here, I'm without my parents, both of them, without my mom and without my father, I'm just picked up, placed back into the Philippines, and I don't know what the heck is going on. Let's just fast forward a little bit because I don't want to like just concentrate on that area. But finally, when I was about nine, 10 years old, my mom was able to retrieve me uh, from the Philippines and I was able to finally live with her permanently. And this is when she moved to Las Vegas, Nevada. I know random, (laughs) it's just like a random place, but just follow, follow along here. Uh, But she had already had situated a home and um, uh, a relationship with my now stepdad. And so when I was finally able to live with my mom, I was like, okay, this is the time. I'm nine, 10 years old. Like I'm finally able to have this relationship with her. So many things happened quickly. She got married. She got pregnant with my brother. And then of course she was like the breadwinner of the family. So she had to go back to work. So even though I came to live with her, I was stuck in a situation where I didn't have 100% communication with my mom. I was trying to get to know myself as a teenager. So if you can only imagine the past experiences that I had as a really tiny, tiny, tiny little girl, and now trying to grow myself into the woman or the teenager and trying to like figure out, you know, where my placement in life, I literally did not have 
like a womanly guidance. And my mom was very strict. So that also caused a lot of friction and a lot of distance in between us. There was also a lot of responsibility on top of me because I helped with my brother. I'm 10 years older than my brother. There was just a lot of things going on. And my teenage um, life was basically trying to find outlets where I can get attention. So that came with scantily clothing that came with trying to get attention from boys. Now, keep in mind, I said, I'm only 10 here. And I I was just trying to get attention in an area where I wasn't getting that at home. If that makes sense. You know, you're trying to discover yourself and you're now in a foreign country and you're trying to also get um, into the custom of like American culture. And keep in mind, this isn't like Jewish home upbringing values, Torah. This is like secular world, you know? Um, and so, yeah, that was like a really confusing time for me as well as a teenager, because I really didn't have the proper guidance. I know my mom was trying to do the best she could, but with that, there was a lot of distance between uh, her and I. So, wow. I mean, it's crazy, but put into context, it, it mm-hmm. sort of makes sense from the psychological perspective that you were acting out that way because mm-hmm. for sure, know, everything that you'd been through up to that point was so unstable for you, you know, for all the different reasons Absolutely. that you mentioned, but, um, mm-hmm. You were sort of trying to find yourself, but as a child, you didn't have the right maturity, right? Brain development to know what you were really doing. So, wow. Yeah. And unfortunately, um, that also came with more trauma and more unfortunate experiences. And I I hope you don't mind. I'm not going to go too deep into that. But basically what was ingrained in me was that how I acted and how I dressed would get attention of the, the, the opposite sex, basically from a man. Right. And I grew up resenting my mom. I grew up a, a lot of times quarreling with my mom. Um, and I grew up resenting my life. And this was just my teenage, uh, teenage years. Surprisingly, I don't know. It's like the grace of a shem. I was also an honor roll student. Usually uh, girls who, you know, go down this really bad path or, you know, they're not doing good in their grades. I was an honor roll student. I think it was my way of still trying to get my mom's attention and pleasing her, you know? So I was an honor roll AP student, but the, the relationship was just so severed between me, my mom and I and her restrictions and just, we weren't able to communicate well that I, I actually left when I was 18, 19 years old. I, I, I really couldn't be at home anymore. And I just went off the derech basically. Yeah. Wow. That's very young to be out on your own in the world. And you were completely living on your own without parental guidance at that point. Absolutely. I was living with a friend and I was working three jobs. Again, I was 18, 19 years old, fast forwarding through a lot of other uh, details. Uh, But 18, 19 years old, I was working three jobs. I couldn't be in my home anymore. I wanted to get to know myself, how how I fit in into society. Um, I was living with a friend. I was paying her and her parents um, a monthly rent of about like 500, $600. And even then they were still gracious. And, you know, they cut that in half here and there because they saw how hard I was working and how young I was and how alone I was. Um, but I think that was the time 
actually before that, I'm so sorry, I need to backtrack really quick. Um, in high school, because I was just so resentful and I was like questioning everything. I think that was when I was just like, is this really it? <laughs> like, is this my life? Like, this cannot be like, this cannot just be it. You know, there has to be something more to this. Is this like the life that I'm dealt with? It can't be. And I think that's when I, I, I started to look into not necessarily Hashem, because I didn't know anything about Judaism. You know, I, I grew up uh, in a Catholic household, but even then that wasn't really like pushed upon me. It wasn't really regular or, you know, something that um, was prominent in the household. I, um, I, I remember a car ride with my mom once and I told her that I didn't believe that Jesus was the Shiach or whatever. And I think this was like a really prominent memory of mine because she literally stopped the car on the side of the, the side of the road and gave me the biggest smack of my life. And um, that, that didn't change like my, my, uh, my inner opinions or I, I definitely stood my ground then, but I think that was the only time that her and I came to an actual religious confrontation. Uh, but again, let's go back when I left the house um, to be honest, I didn't really think much about religiosity because I was just so busy working. But I think when I was like 19, 20 years old, I was working in the mall. Um, and that's where I met my now husband. It's Smith Haven Mall. Uh, that's where I met my husband. Now, I wasn't like actively looking for a Jewish man, to be honest, at that age. And with my ignorance, I didn't really know about Israeli men, you know. Um, I was just working at retail. And I, we, we met at one of those uh, agalot, those carts where Israelis would sell Dead Sea products and hair care products and all of that. And uh, yeah, we just like took an interest with each other. I, I honestly didn't really care for a relationship because again, like I mentioned before, I didn't have time. I was working three jobs. I'm like, I'm new to this outside world scenario, uh, but we hit it off and um I know this kind of sounds weird because it's totally off the deck. This is definitely not derech Torah type of like relationship and shidduch um, dating. But yeah. But you guys just hit it off. See, so it was Bashar no matter what, with the shidduch or without, right? Like we always talk about that Hashem decides who your Bashar is even before you're born. And it's clear that, you know, this was Hashem's way of bringing you close to Judaism and to help you find yourself in a stable life and meaningful life and all of that. So that's so incredible. I think everybody, you know, is probably smiling, thinking about the Israeli guys and girls in the malls, because, you know, every mall you go to, um, we always look out for them. And I've heard many, many people um, say that they've invited the, their Israeli brothers and sisters at the mall over for Shabbos meals and stuff like that. So it's just very cute to envision, you know, that you met your husband there and now look where you guys are today. Yeah. And it was really interesting because everything really happened super fast. Um, we were mamash committed to each other. Like, yeah, you want to do this? Like, you want to like move in together? Like, you know, I'm going to support you. You're going to support me. We're going to do it. Like, it was just, it was that, 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 that. I couldn't even honestly absorb at the moment, like what was happening. Cause it was all happening so fast. We got civilly married. We moved from Long Island to California. I don't know. Honestly, I can't remember. This was like 12 years ago that we decided this. I don't know how. I don't know why. We had $800 in our pocket, but something was calling us to California. We wanted to start life anew. We wanted to just shed everything that was 
maybe holding us back. He had his, you know, own uh, baggage that he wanted to, I guess, just leave in Long Island and just start fresh and new again in maybe a different state. Um, but uh, yeah, we moved here <laughs> to California on a whim. Honestly, we just wanted to start life anew. Um, and just like any couple, I think we went through like the first stages of like, uh, I don't know, you know, having the new apartment, trying to find, you know, jobs and just living the life here in California. I don't know what it was, but like we tried to live the quote unquote California dream. He was non-religious. He was, um, Um, so clubbing, unfortunately, and the nightlife in Los Angeles was a, a reoccurring routine for us weekly. Um, but I think we, I mean, I mean, we went through a lot of experiences together, whether it was financial, whether it was personal, I went through a health scare, you know, he went through some uh, financial uh, highs and lows with business. And I think I was just getting like, like how I envisioned my childhood and my teenagers, I, I went back to that state of mind saying like, this cannot, like, this cannot be it. Like, I'm, I'm tired of this. I, I don't want to go clubbing anymore. Like what, this is my life. I'm going to go clubbing until I'm 40. Like, come on, let's just be, let's just be real. You know, I just, I felt so empty. <laughs> and on top of that, when you go through a lot of trauma in your childhood, those things are reoccurring. You know, I, I don't know uh, if you know anyone or if you have gone through anything personal, those things are reoccurring. Those things flash back once in a while. And if you don't live a purpose, purposeful and meaningful life, you literally sometimes have to face yourself and sit down and really like, really realize that, like, what do you want to do? Like, what is the purpose in life? Like, how do you want to live your life with meaning? And I, I, it started really early. I actually went to a reform. I, I was Googling things online um, about like God. Again, I, I didn't term, um, uh, use the terminology Hashem because I didn't know what I was actually looking for. I was just looking for relationships with God. Um, and mind you, my husband, now my husband, never hinted anything about me being Jewish. I get this question a lot because I realize I'm a convert and I'm, <laughs> and I'm now married to an Israeli. So naturally, I think people are like, oh, so did you convert for your husband? And I kind of get insulted, but I also, I, I also take it with a, with a grain of salt and understanding as well, because maybe, you know, that's just what people observe. It does or, happen. It does happen. But um, I remember Googling and I still have the packet too. It was all of Chabad. Chabad, it was dated 2011. So 2011, I was like researching about God. And I think one of the, the, the recommendations on the screen was a reform, um, a reform, um, what you call this, a reform synagogue. I don't think the internet is really going to recommend you an orthodox um, establishment. So, I mean, that was the first thing that I saw. I didn't know I was a baby. I didn't know what I was doing, but I clicked on it and I'm like, oh, it's actually, you know, it, it suggested the, the, the nearest location to where I was living. And so I said, you know, what? what's the worst thing, thing that can happen? Let me just call and let me just um, uh, speak with the, the rabbi there. And I had my first meeting and I don't know what it was. I didn't feel comfortable. I was just like, what, what, what he was talking about interested me, but not completely. And I remember kissing the mezuzah and he commented, the rabbi commented how weird that was. 
like, oh, that's weird. You kissed the mezuzah. How did and you I, know to do that? Well, because I see, even though my husband at that time wasn't religious, I just saw a lot of Israelis do that. And oh, so I, I found it such like a routine for myself, for myself to do. And so when he commented on that, I didn't actually comment back. I just kind of made a face and it was actually on the way when I walked in and I walked out and it was the second time he commented that. And I think from then I just decided not to go back. I was just like, I don't know why, but I wasn't comfortable with the meeting in the first place. I also wasn't comfortable with that comment. Not that it was insulting, but like, I don't know. It just didn't connect with me basically. And so I said, okay, what do I do next? Like, like I'm not really interested in this congregation. Like, what do I do next? So, I mean, life took a turn, whatever, with work and stuff like that. And I, I really wasn't on top of actually pursuing the research. But fast forward to around 2013, 2014, I found a conservative congregate, congregation that's actually one of the most popular ones here in Los Angeles. And I was so excited for this one because everyone's always saying conservatives, it's, it's in between reform and it's in between you know, Orthodox is Orthodox. They're just really, really, really strict and they oppress women and all these like Lashonara that um, was being fed to me. So I said, oh, okay, this is, this is great. Honestly, I have to be honest, I actually liked the class setting. It was a class setting. Um, there was, you know, um, a lot of people there. We were learning about the history of Israel and, and Judaism, et cetera, et cetera. And then one day they invite us to a Shabbaton and from the get-go, I felt so uncomfortable in the Shabbaton because based on the research that I did, you're not supposed to drive, but, you know, I dro drove there. It seemed like it was normal. And when we, um, when they were trying to show us how to light candles, it was already after sunset. So it, there was just so many things that weren't aligning with the things that I personally researched from. So from, from that point on, I decided to not to not just to stop going to this congregation. And I kind of got depressed a little bit because I'm just like, what? So now I have to proceed on to the orthodoxy, but everyone always tells me that this is like a scary move to make. You know, if when you come from a point where you don't know much <laughs> about religion or Judaism in general, you only feed on the information that people, that people give you. And that creates a fear that creates like a hindrance, you know, but I said, what do I have to lose? And I think I was calling, um, I was calling um, the rabbi that was, that was recommended, uh, recommended to me for months. I was calling and calling and no one was answering. And one day, I think I just made a firm phone call. Listen, and I gave her, I gave them my name. My name in the past was Alexis. This is Alexis. I really, I, I'm really, really interested. I said, I really appreciate if you would give me a call back. Do I have to go to, you know, the synagogue? Do I have to knock on the door? Please let me know more information on what I can do. And I think after that phone call, maybe like they understood the tone of my voice, how serious I was. And the rabbi finally called me back and we made an appointment. He introduced himself over the phone briefly. I introduced myself on the phone briefly. And from then on, we were able to have our first meeting. I'm sorry. Yeah. I know that, that was a mouthful. But your persistence is amazing because I'm trying to envision like where you were at the time when you started this and of all the religions out there in the world, right? You know, so many people, they go to Buddhism to meditate because they want this high connection and whatever, but it like your path took you straight to Judaism, but then you 
were so persistent in trying to find the type that connected with you. It wasn't like, oh, well, this, I tried reform. It's not for me. Goodbye. Like you really wanted, like you were such a soul searcher, um, which is like just so amazing. There, like the Hashkafa is so clear, like Hashem clearly wanted you on this path. But I have to ask, where was your husband's mind in all of this? Because you mentioned he grew up as a secular Israeli, right? Yeah. Um, and so obviously just even that way, culturally, you were probably very different, you know, your different cultural backgrounds. Um, but when you started to pursue wanting this deeper connection, was he on board or was he skeptical? Okay, so he wasn't even with me um, in the, when I was researching reform, he went on a couple of classes with me on the conservative. He was really not into it. He seldom made the classes there, you know, um, he went with me on the Shabbaton and he made a comment how, oh, this is interesting. And I also made the comment, like how they were just lighting the candles, not on time. It was just like, so weird. Um, I want to mention the reason why I sought Judaism and maybe this is coincidence. I don't believe in coincidences. However you want to look at it. I just knew that there was a creator and I want to emphasize that because you said, Oh, why didn't I look into Buddhism and things like that? I just knew there was a creator. I I, I kind of parallel it to um, how Abraham of Vinu kind of looked out into the world and said like there, there is a creator of all things, you know? I, I didn't look to anything other than there's just one. There's just echad. You so wanted when, a relationship with God, it sounds like. There you go. Yes. Um, and then when I went and I finally made the approach to uh, to convert in a, with an Orthodox rabbi, I've got to say he definitely was scared. He was scared because he grew up in a in a Chiloni Israeli household where they kept traditions, but, you know, he even opened up to me uh, at one time, actually very recently, how when he was young, you know, you only saw the bad uh, news or the bad outlets of how the Haridim, how the religious are this and that, and and that made an impression on him. And he grew up Jewish, you know, so uh, tell him, by the way, (laughs) (laughs) I want to, you know, convert into orthodoxy for him. He was just like, are you sure? And I think he asked me that not because he's asking for me, but because he understood that if I were, if I was going to step into this, he, he has to consider if he wants to step into this as well. And I think that became really, really imminent when I was actually a fairly towards the end of my conversion and he was getting frustrated. And I think he was getting frustrated because he also understood there's a lot of expectations for men in um in Judaism and I think at that time he didn't know if he was ready to take on that responsibility so I think uh, maybe this was on a whim of his emotions but he encouraged me like like, let's just leave this like let's let's like not do this like let's let's go it's either me or this process and I remember it was actually during Rosh Hashanah it's crazy how I'm on this podcast and I'm having chills right now because we had guests and he was, he was acting out and I'm so embarrassed. And I, I, I told him, let's, let's go out for a moment. Cause I, I don't want to argue. Like, you know, I don't want to argue in front of, of people. And I, I remember sitting on like the, the brick. Um, I don't know what you call it. It doesn't even matter. I, we were sitting in front of my apartment and I was looking at him and I said, of course I'm staying. 
I'm, I'm staying with my rabbi. E- even if we're not together, I know my rabbi is going to take care of me because he sees how serious I am. And it almost came as like an outer body experience. Like, you know, sometimes you like, you hear yourself say it. So like you say it, but you, it's like an outer body experience. Like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I actually said that. And the disbelief that actually came with me saying that it, the, with the look on his face, he understood then how serious I was. I think maybe, I don't know. I think maybe he thought a little bit this was for him because he was like, I'm, I'm, this is taking like a long time. This is ridiculous. All these things. No, no, no. Let's, let's, it's either me or this, this process. And I said, of course I'm going to take this process, you know? And listen, this was back in the end of 2017. I already, I converted 2018 of that, of that January, uh, the, the, the um, uh, January after. Um, I want to emphasize that because I, I, I felt I knew I was towards the end and I felt so much how I wanted this. Like finally there was like purpose in my life, finally connected to a people that I didn't have a connection before. If, if I had to like go through like my childhood and all of that again, like I, I belonged here. And this was at the end of 2017. So at that point we were already eight years together for a person, for myself to look at my partner and say, I don't wanna be with you if this is the ultimatum that you're gonna give me. I'm going to follow this process through. That was really scary for me, I have to admit, but I said it anyway, because that was, that was the real deal. And I think at that moment, he looked at me and he gained so much respect for me. And he understood that I'm not budging in this. So surprisingly, I just wanna fast forward that he is actually a Talmud now. He, you know, he, he teaches, he teaches Gemara, he teaches classes. He's really, really into studying. We're in currently in my husband's room right now, filled wall to wall with books. It's just so interesting how you say you don't want to do something or you say something and Hashem completely turns the tables on you. First of all, I, I want to pick on a couple of things you said. First of all, it's like so amazing. Uh, I feel like I could listen to your story like all night. Um, but the fact that he started chickening out at that moment, it's almost like it got so real to him, right? Like he knew that it was so close. And that moment was like, uh, like exhilarating, but terrifying, you know, like yeah. had he been like wishy-washy, like, eh, maybe whatever, he probably wouldn't have reacted that way. But because it was so real, you know, that's what brought that out. But, you know, you mentioned that it was scary for you to give him that ultimatum because you would have, you would have been giving up so much after eight years together, had he, God forbid, said no. But at the same yeah. time, you gained so much in the fact that he said yes, because you know that he's so committed to you. You know, the fact that he was willing to like turn over his entire life because of something that you wanted to do more than him, Mm -hmm. right? That means it was you, not Mm -hmm. the religion. He wanted you, right? At that moment, like he, he was following you. So like you have such a devoted partner. Yeah. um, I don't know if I could speak from him on that. Maybe it was because he was afraid to lose me. Honestly, it's weird because I've never asked him if, if what was the reason for him just following through, 
but maybe initially it was it was me maybe it, initially it was because he gained so much respect of what my reply was to him but i can tell you i wasn't the only one pushing myself and pushing him i think the rabbis saw something in him and pushed him as well so i think that's why the walls kind of caved on him and he felt that pressure and i think maybe his yetzirah was toying with him a little bit that's also one of the reasons maybe why he wanted to escape. My husband is a type where he really doesn't see his, like you have to, in, to really show his, his potential on a, like on a platter because he, he actually does think humbly of himself. He doesn't really think much of himself, you know? And I saw potential in him from the get-go. So why am I saying that? It's because now that he's, wow he's even beyond what i'm what i am right now his knowledge it's it's crazy and i think just throughout time he gained such a, a connection to hashem and such a love for hashem that with or without me he would also continue on with his with his i, I want to give him credit because i know I know maybe it initially was me. I never really truly asked him, but I know for sure he gained such a level of love and compassion and commitment to, to Hashem and to studying that it's really, it's, it's very admirable, you know, to, to witness, to see every day. Sure. It, it's incredible. You guys have like such an amazing um, like depth because of everything that you've been through and, you know, learning everything from the ground up and making that commitment to Hashem, to each other. It's like so beautiful. And I, I still maintain that your marriage is for sure stronger because of it, because I think that, you know, you guys went through this process together with all the ups and downs and everything. Um, so that's, like an amazing, amazing story. And I know you just like brushed through like, you know, 20 years of your life. Um, there's for sure so much more depth to that, which I'm not going to hold you hostage all night. Yeah. But I wanted to talk a little bit about something that's a passion of yours, which is the mitzvah of modesty and sneers. And mm -hmm. I think that you're in a very unique position to talk about this because you mentioned that um, sort of the opposite of Sneus was the way you acted out as a teenager. And I think it's probably common, um, even among Jewish and from circles, when kids are acting out, that's one of the things that one of the things that goes. But in general, you know, I grew up religious and I learned about Sneus in school and all that, but I know that for myself, for many of my my peers, it's not a mitzvah that comes very easily. Um, and of course we have a lot of influences that want to show the portrayal of the female body and everything, um, you know, in order to gain attention and, and show that you're desirable and all that stuff. Um, and of course, recently there was that show my unorthodox life that really highlighted a lot of this and gave people like a lot of negative feelings. So I'm curious how you decided to take on this mitzvah, why you decided to take on this mitzvah with so much passion, not just because it is part of your conversion process, but that's actually how you identify yourself, right? As the modest mm -hmm. bohemian. And I know that you talk a lot about Sneas and you dress in a very refined way now. Um, what about this mitzvah is so special to you and why? 
So in a past post, I think you probably saw it already. It was a two-part post about um, how I grew up with secular society, uh, truly convincing women. And you can see it with the billboards, commercials, and all of this, that showing your body is sexy. It's beautiful. It's, you know, it's an, uh, a rebellious act against the patriarchy. All these like phrases that honestly, in my opinion, I really, in my, I can only speak for myself. I really roll my eyes too, because when you think about it, I guess in a, in a more logical perspective, listen, I was the complete opposite, like complete opposite of snoot. Even in my young adult years, I was very, very out in the open. Let's just, let's just say that. If you think about it, how is that feminism? How is that empowerment for you? You know, sometimes secular tells you it's, it's empowering. You can do whatever you want with your body. Okay, but we, we don't give enough credit to how a person perceives you and how that image now is stuck in their mind. And now that image belongs to them. Just think about that for a moment. How is that empowering when you cannot have any say to that image in that person's mind? That image now belongs to them. They can, I guess you can say, fantasize, exaggerate, or imagine anything they want with that. They for almost me, own this part of you. That part of you. And for me, that is not only like, a lack of control of, of me, of myself, of my image, of who I am, it gives power to those people to do whatever they want. You can't control people's minds, unfortunately. You can't, you can't take back memories. You can't take back those things. So when I come from this at a personal perspective and I think, oh my goodness, the amount of people, men, women, that have seen my image, I, I can't pick apart those 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 fragments. I can't pick apart those spaces in their minds that now they will host in their mind forever. So why I love Snoot is because I have control of who can see the most intimate parts of me, which is, you know, my husband. I have control of that first and foremost. So for me, that's empowering because it's like, it's a sign like, wait, hold on. You, you don't get to see the things that my husband gets to see. That to me is empowering. I have control of that. You understand? Yes. It really does make a lot of sense when it's framed that way. But the, the broader culture is so powerful. And the portrayals of, like you said, movies and billboards and all that stuff, when it's all that people see constantly, that's what they believe the value is, right? And how many young women or, or teenage girls are taught what you just said? Very, very few, right? Yeah. And look at it from a personal perspective. What did I do when I was a teenage girl? I just, I just said it in this podcast. The first thing I did was like be all flirtatious and how I acted and wear scantily clothing. And I was at, at a, such a young age. It's not like someone sat me down and said, you know, these are the values ABCD. I just picked it up from what I witnessed from what I saw, because I thought that that is how you should portray yourself in order to get attention. I mean, I can't speak for everyone else. We, we never can, but I can speak from my point of view. And that's how I, that's how I, how I feel. 
I have lost control of myself. I have lost my own power by giving that image to someone else. So interesting because it's very consistent with something that I heard recently. Um, I was listening to, um, it was a YouTube um, episode recording between Allison Josephs from Jew in the City and Joyce Zria. I don't know if you know of Joyce Zria, but she is, um, she grew up secular and her father was Max Zria Alavashalom who owned BCBG. So mm-hmm. she grew up in the fashion world and the two of them were, and Allison Josephs is also, also grew up secular. So the two of them were mm-hmm. talking about Sinus and Allison made the point that at, at a young age, you know, she was also taught that as a woman, as a girl, you almost have like an obligation to show your body off. Like if you have it, flaunt it, you know, that whole sort of idea. And the first time she ever went out like covered, like Sinus, when she started taking that on, she said a, a man passed her by and he looked at her and she felt all of a sudden so empowered because she was like, you don't get to see what's all under, like what's under my clothes because it's under my control now. Right. Yeah. Like, whereas in the past, he like exactly what you're saying. He would have then owned that image of her body. And once she decided to take on that mitzvah, it was, it was in her control. Whereas before mm-hmm. it wasn't. So it's really fascinating that you make that, um, distinction. So, you know, I kind of think I, I know where you'll go with this now, but a lot of people outside of our world will look at us and say, you're so oppressed. Like, look at you, you have to cover your hair. You have to cover your elbow. What's wrong with an elbow? You know, like what you have to protect the men around you from having bad thoughts and things like that. And it's always framed in such a negative way. Like you're so oppressed and, you know, I don't want to harp on this show, but that it yeah. was made a very big point of, I was so oppressed. I was so oppressed. Now I'm going to go out and just sort of like show it all to the world because I was so oppressed. So it's, what's your response to that claim of oppression of Orthodox Jewish women? So it's interesting how many of these people that label oppressed women probably don't know a handful of modest women in their lives. And they'll be surprised to know that the women that actually are modest chose to be modest. I know we have these, you know, media where it's like a bad portrayal of oppressed women. Okay. I'm not taking away from that, but the majority of the women I would say decided to be modest, decided their modesty for themselves. And I want to add on to the fact that I talked about myself, myself, my empowerment. You notice how I didn't say that this is, has anything to do with men. I know that there are probably some sources, you know, in Torah, and I'm, I'm not in a position to say that because I'm not a, a Talmud, you know, I'm not really versed in this, but I'm pretty sure there are some uh, sources where it says about, you know, how to avert men's eyes away. Okay, Sababa. <laughs> but when you attach, not just the mitzvah, think about it, not just the mitzvah of Sniut, but any mitzvah to a person, you're not giving that mitzvah credit to yourself or power to yourself. And if it's for someone else throughout time, that's going to breed resentment because it's always going to be for that other person. If I dress mute for men and so that men won't look at me, 
there's going to come a day where I'm going to be so resentful of that. Why do I have to dress ABCD because of men? Men should, and you, you realize this is the tonation of what people say nowadays, because are they really dressing modestly for themselves? Are they really viewing modesty for themselves and for that connection with Hashem? You understand what I'm saying? If you attach it to, oh, because I have to do it this for that person, of course, it's not going to be sustainable. <laughs> if it's for yourself, like, listen, with conversion, right? It's very similar. It's very parallel. If I had done this for my spouse, I'm not so sure I would be so passionate about it because it wouldn't have been for myself. It would have been for another person. And if that relationship didn't work out, then what? Would it have really been a myth? Would it have really been because I wanted to do it? So just as in Snoot, right? You have to do it as a means to empower yourself for yourself and not because it's, you know, for anybody else. It's, in my opinion, it's a more sustainable relationship that way. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense, right? Like yeah. it's when it comes from within, it's really much more pure, but it's so fascinating that you frame it like completely opposite of how people want to claim it is, right? Like, oh, it's so sad, you're so oppressed. And you're like, take that and completely turn it on its head and be like, I am so empowered, right? It's really fascinating that you can frame it in a totally different way. This is so interesting. I just read this and I wish I remember where that some woman, um, I think she might've been a Chabad. So she was like dressed, you know, totally sneas, but went into like um, a Trader Joe's or something. And the lady behind the counter said, oh, I watched those shows on Netflix and I'm so sorry for you. I just want you to know, I know what you're going through and you have my support and good for her, right? The religious woman looked at her and said, I love my life. I chose this life, you know? And she completely, you know, in, in, a, in a cool way, not like a degrading way, but she gave, sort of gave it to her. Um, and that goes along with what you're saying too, you know, like people will have their, their impressions of us based on what they've heard, unfortunately. And it's so hard mm -hmm. to watch that happen, you know, because we know what our life is like. Um, and like you said, those of us who chose it, chose it, which is also something that I would tell people who question my life. Like I mentioned, I work in healthcare, so I have like a very diverse, um, I have very diverse colleagues and peers. And my response mm -hmm. is like, I could leave this lifestyle whenever I want, you know, like, yes, I grew up in it, but the fact that I choose it means I choose it every day. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's just a way to, to reframe it for the doubters. <laughs> Absolutely. It's interesting how when people say that you're oppressed, it always comes with something like um, uh, of how, how you're wearing or how you're presenting yourself. And people don't realize oppression comes in different layers and in different disguises. There's a lot of censorship going on on social media. That is a form of oppression. No one talks about that blatantly and out in the open. You know, sometimes we are not capable of voicing our own opinions and in certain forums, et cetera, et cetera. That's a form of oppression. Why does oppression always have to be linked with modesty? You know, why is it always linked to such a negative connotation? You know, that, really that's just like a, <laughs> that, that I'm just thinking of like, yeah, it's a very interesting thought. And maybe it's just indicative of the more general culture, you know, of equality. Um, and people don't often 
look beneath the surface, right? So it's, if you want to be equal, then what's the most external way to be equal? You Men can dress however they want. Women can dress however they want, right? And unfortunately, yeah. there's so many layers beneath that, like you're saying, that people don't necessarily stop and do that introspection, you know, and think about, you know, equality goes a lot deeper than just what you put on your body and, you know, things Absolutely. like that. Absolutely. So fascinating. And I love your perspective. And it's so fresh and it's so real, you know, like you did that exploration on yourself. You, um, you did that exploration for yourself. You came to it yourself and you worked through it to be at this point where not only is it something that you do because it's just part of the process, but it's something that you really champion in such a beautiful way. And I noticed that you also, you know, your, your modesty is also very beautified, you know, like you're not looking frumpy or schleppy or whatever you, you're really beautifying the mitzvah, which I think is exactly how it's meant to be. Thank you. Thank you. I, I honestly really enjoy it. It, it, enjoy it a lot. It took me a, you know, I, I think it does for every woman to find her own niche when it comes to her own personal style to match with her personality. I think that's important. That goes with anything. I don't think we should be looking at only one set of style. I mean, of course, within the guidelines of and things like that, but um, I think the beauty of beautifying the mitzvah is connecting that with who you are and your personality. So, you know, my, my, my username is the modest bohemian. I love bohemian natural trends. And I really try to exude that. Not that I try, cause that's just like innate within me, but that is who I embody. You know, I'm, I'm not, uh, the typical girly girl. Um, I, I really try to um, mold my modesty into who Abigail is, and I think I think that's really apparent when I when, you know when I talk to someone or when someone uh, discovers me on social media. I think I think they get that <laughs> that yeah. energy. Yeah, me. definitely, definitely. You're great at what you do. So, just in closing, you know, you mentioned that there was so much turbulence in your childhood. Um, but uh, you also mentioned to me offline that you you do speak with your mom now. So I just wanted to um, discuss quickly, just for the audience's benefit, how was your mom's reaction when you converted and what's your relationship with her now? So her reaction wasn't honestly either or. I know that sounds very vague. She wasn't thrilled, but I don't think she expressed any disappointment because I think right now what we are is we're not close, but we are in a respectable relationship. And I try to keep it at that because when I also consider my children and I consider future relationships and I'm a big person on forgiveness and, you know, just moving things on with as much grace as possible. So she hasn't really expressed to me if she's super, super disappointed, but she hasn't uh, expressed to me her enthusiasm as well I think she's just like she just takes it as it is and we're in like cordial like respectable terms and I think she also has you know kept in mind the relationship and connection as much as possible with her with her grandchildren and I think that's important I think you know everyone I'm a big believer in communication 
But I also believe that there's certain things that you don't really need to enter, maybe not right now, or maybe in the future when everyone's more mature, when et cetera, et cetera. But I don't think it's something that her and I need to really hash out right now because we really are in a respectable like medium, if that makes sense. She slapped me when I was a teenager. So that clearly showed that when I told her I didn't believe in, in Jesus, you know, and our beliefs and how I was raised, clearly she showed how upset she was then. So I'm not so sure if it has changed or it's still the same, but she's just not trying to create friction because it's so easy for her and I to get into friction. Um, so I believe she's also keeping that into consideration as well. Well, I'm really happy to hear that your guys are in a good place. And, you know, it can't be easy for any parent that's passionate about what they believe in to see their Absolutely. child choose a very different path. And the fact that she can even be in that medium space with you and you can be in that medium space with her after the turbulent um, growing up years, I think is is a tremendous testament to both of you and your maturity. And, um, you know, I wish you guys nothing but the success in building your relationship and hopefully from here you can grow into you know hopefully develop more closeness over time but Thank i think you. even where you're at now is a huge testament to the maturity that both of you have so oh. it's really nice so abigail thank you so so much for giving me your time for giving us your time um, I'm so happy that we finally did this and that it finally worked out. We are in two different time zones, so it wasn't Thank easy coordinating this between that and our mom life and our kids yeah. lives and all that, but it's <laughs> such a pleasure getting to know you. You're really inspiring. And, you know, I hope that during the month of Elul and the time that we all think about true, but people can really gain from your experience. Um, you know, your introspection, your depth, and can really grow and hopefully in the midst of us as well, since our audience is women, um, hopefully people find a, a new sort of perspective and appreciation of the mitzvah. So thank you so, so, so much again. I, I just want to close off with something about Elul. And um, I talked about forgiveness and just moving forward with grace. And I think that's really important to not just think about with relationships, but relationships with ourselves and our growth and our tzniyot. I think it's important to really approach everything with a ton of grace and kindness moving forward. Yeah. Um, and that is really sustainable. And that I, I, I believe in the long run will get us further with the mitzvah of tzniyot. And just put the relationship with ourselves and Hashem. Listen, this is not easy. You know, <laughs> I think you can attest to that. I, I think many people can resonate with that. So, you know, now that we're in the month of Elo, I think it's super important to think about those aspects as well. Absolutely. Yeah. And for anybody who hasn't yet listened to my prior episode with Esti Marcus, where we really delve into the depth of the relationship between ourselves and our relationship between Hashem and how that all plays into the tshuva process in the month of El goes 100% to what Abigail just said. So thank you so much for adding that as well. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for your patience and the cooperation to just put this together. It's been, it was really amazing to, to be here. Thank you so, so much. 